The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Unproblematic Trolley Edition. It's Wednesday, July 4th, 2018. Fireworks everywhere. On today's show, Won't You Be My Neighbor is the new documentary about Mr. Rogers, the pioneer and icon of all icons uh, when it comes to children's television programming. We discuss, and then Nanette, the hour-long monologue by Australian, nay, Tasmanian comedian Hannah Gadsby is its scorching, pitiless, absolutely brilliant, and it's lighting up my Twitter like a Christmas tree. We had to discuss it. We do. And finally, here in America, we play football while the rest of the world plays football. But of course, these are two totally different sports. We discuss the World Cup with the man himself, Mike Pesca, host of the Gist podcast. And I mean, I gotta think Supreme. Is he a Supreme friend of the program? Ultimate supreme. <laughs> I don't understand the hierarchy, the the stadium yeah, ranking. You're, of... you're the you're the soul keeper <laughs> of the level, Steve. So I'll I'll take your word for it. I think he's an usfop. He's an ultimate supreme friend of the program. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, I do have J- Julia. Before we dig in, I do have one question. Sure. Since we're uh, discussing the World Cup uh, in today's show, am I allowed to watch the World Cup while we record the program? Uh, unfortunately, you've already committed the main faux pas, which is to admit that you were watching the World Cup during a work event. We had a, we had a conference call. It's late yesterday, a video conference where like it became clear about seven eighths of the way through the meeting that they were in the same wall that they were looking at the camera that showed us their faces. They were also <laughs> watching the TV. <laughs> That's um, awesome. But the first rule is don't tell. So you broke. Yep. It. All right, so then I won't let you know that Sweden and Switzerland are all knotted up at zero, zero. Um, All right, uh, digging right in, Won't You Be My Neighbor is a documentary. It's by Morgan Neville, who did uh, the wonderful one about backup singers. Dana, what was it called? It was called 20 Feet from Stardom, and it won an Oscar for Best Documentary that year. Yeah, a wonderful movie, as is this. So this one's about Fred, a.k.a. Mr. Rogers. Rogers was on his way to becoming an ordained minister. He did eventually become one uh, when he found himself appalled by the epidemic of what he saw as glib violence, really, on television, particularly on uh, television programs aimed at children. This upset him greatly, and he set about creating his own corrective, his own neighborhood, a dreamy landscape populated by puppets and friends dropping by in which the only apposite lessons were simple kindness, tolerance, and um, kind of an overall lesson about how, as I take it, uh, sort of about how self-respect and respect for others were sides of a single coin. We rediscover in this uh, wonderful film that familiar, soft, sweet, open demeanor beneath which one discovers is only more softness and sweetness though maybe not openness. I'm interested to hear your views on that. Uh, Anyway, the movie manages to be neither hagiography nor expose, but an examination of a hero we all, I think, need right now more than ever. It's also more than that. It's a plea to connect back to our own childhood, which we seem collectively to be in the process of strangling. Uh, It's a wonderful movie. Let's listen to a clip. We had a director that once said to me, you take all of the elements that make good television and do the exact opposite. You have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Low production values, simple set, unlikely star. Yet, it worked. Because he was saying something really important. Love is at the root of everything. 
all learning, all parenting, all relationships, love or the lack of it. And what we see and hear on the screen is part of who we become. Dana, let me start with you. I, I I would say one of the characteristic facts of this documentary is that there's no there's no turning point. There's no moment when it suddenly becomes dark or when some previously unknown and uncomfortable fact about the man or the TV show suddenly rises to the surface. You know, uh, making you rethink it and your relationship to it. It's just not structured in that way. Um, and so for a while, I didn't think I liked the movie or was engaged or, or being moved by it, but I was a puddle of tears by the end of it. What what happened to me in the course of that? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what happened to you. I'm interested that you went from expecting this tension and reveal to then being happy not to have gotten it. I think I went in knowing that already, maybe just from reading about it or just knowing that Mr. Rogers had a pretty spotless record as a human being, that it wasn't going to be some dark side expose. And uh, and that was why I actually chose to see this movie on my birthday. It was my birthday present to myself to go oh. see the Mr. Rogers documentary because I, it, I just knew that it was what we all need right now. And the phrase that kept coming to my mind as I was watching it and uh, having stupidly not brought tissues, wiping my, <laughs> wiping my eyes on my viewing companion shirt was, uh, was this phrase um, from from Shakespeare, from Merchant of Venice, from Portia's famous speech about mercy, where she says, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven, right? This movie drops like the gentle rain from heaven. It's just so welcome to have a movie that is actually about someone good doing good things in the world and uh, and to remember that person with respect. And uh, yeah, so this movie completely did me in in that way. I was also going to say that among the three of us, I think I can claim Mr. Rogers' hipster cred because I was actually born into the perfect demographic for this show. I was two years old when Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood debuted in 1968. And uh, and it, it's so kind of interwoven with my childhood that I immediately started to cry and feel Proustian feelings upon just hearing mm. the opening song and seeing the beat up tiger puppet, which becomes a big part of this movie. We need to talk about Daniel the tiger for sure. Um, and all of those things are so kind of deeply embedded that there weren't specific memories. The way that on Sesame Street, for example, I can remember Stevie Wonder appearing on Sesame Street and the number he did. And I actually wrote about that for Slate when we did our big Stevie Wonder package. But Mr. Rogers, you don't remember in that way, right? Because it didn't mm. really have guest stars. I mean, I guess once in a while there were people that would appear that didn't usually appear. But the whole thing about Mr. Rogers, which this documentary really stresses, is that it was always the same, right? That he wanted to create this space of stability and quiet and sort of slow, steady contact with children where he always took his jacket off at the beginning and put on the cardigan and the shoes. He always sang the same goodbye song at the end. The movement from the you know real world of his house into the imaginary world of the puppets was always the same with that little trolley being put on the track. And uh, the, the documentary talks about that too, about how he wanted to create this division between the imaginary and the real and not collapse that division. Anyway, I knew all those things about Mr. Rogers, but just kind of having that DNA be reactivated was uh, was extremely moving and powerful to me. Yeah. I mean, Julia, it seems to me, um, that was beautifully put, but um, it seems to me that at the heart of this is a man who, um, who was called, you know, he was a, a devout Christian who wanted to uh, fulfill the, you know, was called to the pastoral function, duty, and uh, believed that that could and should center on children in a uh, in a in a unique way uh, at the developmental stage as children are 
working their way through the emotional complexities of maturing. Um, and someone who understood the power of television as a mass medium. And I think what he probably saw and what the, the documentary implies that he saw was this disconnect between what a church might do and what a television set in a living room uh, was doing. And he tried to bring those two things together. What what do you make of this movie? Oh, I loved it. And I wept. And despite not being the exact same microgeneration as Dana, I also grew up watching Mr. Rogers religiously. Well, that's the thing. It really didn't change. I mean, in a way, I can't claim hipster cred because he was doing the same thing until 2001. Yeah. I mean, it was it was completely part of the fabric of my childhood. And it was Proustian and fascinating to go back and watch the shows again. I haven't shown this to my children. I have shown them on YouTube. The, the one thing that I did remember were the segments where he'd go to factories he did a series of segments that they don't come up in this film where he went to factories and you got to see crayons being made or fortune cookies being made. And you can find all those on YouTube. And so my more recent reacquaintance with Mr. Rogers had been sometimes showing my children those uh, little segments uh, on YouTube. And the thing that struck me the first time we queued one up was the quality of Mr. Rogers's voice and speech. Maybe we can listen to one for a little bit here. There's the railroad tank car, which carries the hot wax. And from the tank, it's poured into a kind of big kettle. This is a kind of powder that makes the wax hard. The thought I had immediately upon hearing it is, oh my God, Mr. Rogers was ASMR. I, we've talked, I think, a little bit of, of, about this show oh of the like God. the videos where people like softly whisper and crinkle papers and tell you, you know, maybe you better slyly open this pack of Wrigley's gum or whatever. <laughs> and like people find these videos so mesmerizing and peaceful. I'm not an ASMR partisan or fan. I don't watch them. But his particular quiet, slightly breathy, extremely precise enunciation is a very unusual way of speaking for a public figure then or now, I think. I mean, he's a very particular mode of communication. Um, and I just, it's so distinct from the rest of the media that my kids watch, whether it's like wordless clanging train videos that have no narration and no human person in them or these kind of whiz-bang learning is fun shows that have a very zippy-zappy tone that they also favor. Um, and so... He just feels he has an otherworldly quality, like a, a feeling of being a being from elsewhere. And I hadn't known about his uh, his calling or his attraction to the ministry or that he thought about his show in this way. But when you understand that, it makes you look at the whole show through a different lens and see each episode as, a service, essentially, with a set of rites and rituals and a sermon, you know, a sermon done through puppets and play for children. Um, but, you know, one of the reviews we read of this talked about how the work of Mr. Rogers was helping children with their emotional literacy uh, and raised the question of who or what does that work in our culture right now. And that, to me, is one of the things that is so powerful about the film. It's not just remembering and better understanding this figure who was a part of so many childhoods of people who are adults in the world today, you know, 
40 years worth, 30 years worth of, uh, of, of people. Um, it's also just thinking we feel the world feels emotionally illiterate. The world feels mm. incapable mm-hmm. of handling its emotions, measuring them. You know, even the, some of the anxieties about technology that we sometimes argue about on the show or about how do we regulate our emotions and relationships to the changing ways in which we encounter information, encounter each other, encounter images of what life is like. Um, and the sense that there's a missing wisdom missing counsel in the world is part of what makes the remembrance of this person who shouldered that responsibility so potent. Mm, I, t- I totally agree with that. Um, the man was multidimensional and human without harboring this kind of peak TV dark side that be- has become something of a cliche. Um, I think at the at the heart of at least one of his insights was uh, and what made him so true, I think, is that uh, childhood is frightening um, and very disorienting. Uh, and it's easy to be sentimental about children, in which case it's very easy to not get what their inner experience really is at all. Um, and his message, I think, to kids, but also to grownups was it's okay to be in touch with what's frightening and disorienting about being a child. I mean, it's a position of sort of ultimate openness, but also thereby vulnerability. And I, to me, what I took away from the the the, the you know, topical urgency of the film for me came home with the idea that if you're not in touch with that, you compensate by seeking out rigid structures of meaning and experience. Um, and uh, and uh, I just, you know, this is kind of to put it a little bluntly, but there's just something c- clearly anti-fascist about that man's orientation in the deepest sense that that if you can learn to speak to and through what is the residual sense of childhood vulnerability within you you don't you don't have compensatory modes of of anger and retribution that are really characteristic of american public life right now to the degree that this movie does show any kind of dark underside it just shows that you know fred rogers was not always secure that he came from a childhood that was lonely he he spent a lot of time in bed with childhood diseases and he talked about playing with toys in bed and kind of making his own worlds and how that was sort of where the the puppet universe sprang from uh, apparently he went through a period where he was called fat freddy and was an overweight adolescent who was teased about that they don't really go super far into his uh, family background or or the uh, the background of his own sons and his wife who were interviewed but you get enough of a sense of him to know that he was a person who maybe tended toward depression and that, well, remember I said I wanted to talk about Daniel the Tiger. To me, it was incredibly moving to discover that Daniel the Tiger was, for Mr. Rogers, kind of a um, an important tool for, for communicating. In other words, he wasn't just using the puppet to, to talk to children. He was using it to express parts of himself, sort of insecure and frightened parts that he, he couldn't otherwise express. And there's some really interesting talk. I think his wife talks about this, about how as his career went on, he stopped identifying as much with Daniel, the vulnerable tiger puppet, and identified more with King Friday, the imperious king who rules the uh, the puppet kingdom. One of the other things the documentary notes is that he weighed 143 pounds every single day of his life, and that in his, I think someone calls it personal numerology, that means I love you, because I is one letter, and love is four, and you is three. And... Uh, but for someone to have rigid exercise patterns and weight expectations who experienced his teen years as Fat Freddy is like not an uncomplicated or unsuggestive 
fact about his mm-hmm. yeah there's definitely yeah there's a sense that there was a sort of barely holding it together person behind barely holding it together is exaggerating but a, a, a fragile person behind that very calm and strong exterior and that of course is probably what made him able to communicate so clearly with children right that he wasn't just a benevolent authority figure spreading around his perfectly adjusted secureness that he was he was sharing a certain fragility with them it's also interesting just to conclude quickly i know we have to wrap is uh his christianity was never made explicit on the show his status as a minister was uh um, essentially hidden or just it was never arose explicitly and washing feet is such a powerful Christological image um, and it just shows you the way to be a Christian is to save not to proselytize I mean he was an absolute exemplar when it came to that so anyway an extraordinary documentary people should uh, absolutely seek it out won't you be my neighbor uh, I think it's in fairly wide release um, so check it out all right moving on Julia, um, we're going to break with precedent here, and I'm going to kick off business with the most important fact of all, which is that Sweden, Switzerland tied at zero at the half. All right. <laughs> You're up. I can't believe you opened with a football football thing. Like, we're idiots, <laughs> but we're not that much of idiots. And then now you're giving us live updates. Like, you have a wildly oscillating sense of Dana's and my <laughs> level of interest and knowledge about soccer. But Okay. <laughs> Um, Our business today is brief. We want to thank everyone who submitted songs to Summer Strut. I believe we have a record number of submissions this year, which suggests a record-breakingly excellent playlist. Uh, We'll be discussing it with uh, Chris Melanfi, our uh, shepherd through the wilds of music, in a few weeks. In the meantime, we'll post a list to the master playlist on the show page and at facebook.com slash culturefest if you want to listen along. In Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about summer camp and our experiences therewith. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support Slate and the journalism that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. All right, I'll close my browser on Sweden, Switzerland. <laughs> All right, well, as an extra little goodie, I get to talk a, at least a little bit about Tasmania on the next uh, uh, segment. Hannah Gadsby is a star in Australia, but not as well known here, I believe. The, that's in the process of changing and fast. Thanks to her scorching, like skin-peelingly funny, caustic, tragic, relevant, strange, erudite, vomitously personal, I say that, um, admiringly stand-up set that's now streaming on Netflix. Roughly the first half of it is dedicated to fairly familiar comedy territory, stand-up territory, to self and other deprecation, uh, centered on growing up as a non-conforming, generally non-conforming person in Tasmania. The second half gets darker, more personal, more righteously angry, and quite beautiful and unique in a way. She manages to weave together personal history with art history with an intense sense of uh, rage and displacement, all of which resolves into something of a resignation letter from comedy, maybe? Anyway, we'll discuss. Let's listen to a clip. Welcome to my show. Uh, My show is called Nanette. And the reason my show is called Nanette is because I named it before I wrote it. I named it at around the time I'd met a woman called Nanette, (laughs) who I thought was very interesting. 
So interesting, Nanette. I thought, I reckon I can squeeze a good hour of laughs out of you, Nanette, I reckon. <laughs> but um, turns out, no. Nah. <laughs> I met her in a, a small town cafe. Now, I, feel, I don't feel comfortable in a small town. I get a bit tense, uh, mainly because I'm this situation. <laughs> and in a small town, that's all right from a distance. People are like, oh, good bloke. And then <laughs> you get a bit close and it's like, oh, no, no, trickster woman, what are you doing? All right, Julia, let me start with you. Um, you know, we got nudged into doing this, uh, happily nudged into doing this segment by the sheer amount of chatter about Nanette and Hannah Gadsby on um, Twitter. Uh, I found it, I mean, rewarding is such a, mild way of putting it. I mean, this is, I just think, an extraordinary document. What did you make of it? I'm bummed you started with me because I'm a little confused about how I feel about this. I didn't like it as much as everybody else did, I think. Not because it isn't incredibly smart and powerful and arresting and interesting, but because... I felt lectured, which I guess was the point and is a radical thing to do with comedy. But I had the thought watching it like, oh, this is a TED talk. Like there's these rhythms of anecdote, uh, revelation of underlying systemic thing to understand and like take away aha revelation that is a structure that I don't love. And uh, then I was like, ugh, what a curdled bad audience member I'm being. Like, clearly the point here is to not give the audience what they expect from a comedy show. And uh, this woman is the future. And how great to have a comedy set appropriate to our terrible moment. I just felt lectured in this way that I did not enjoy. And then actually listened to the Wave segment on the show. They discussed it last week. Uh, and... Uh, one of their panelists also used the word TED Talk about it. So I was like, great, well, I'm not alone in finding it to be TED Talky. Um, and so I don't know. There's much to admire here, but I didn't feel it. Mm, I um, I will third that. I thought TED Talk uh, midway through, that didn't bother me for reasons I'll explain in a second. But first, Dana, uh, Julia's somewhat on the fence about it. I thought it was by and large quite uh, brilliant and moving. What do you think? I mean, it's certainly moving. The second half that becomes the storytelling half that kind of excoriatingly deconstructs the first half uh, is is really emotionally powerful. I feel like I the, the, I knew the swerve was coming. What I would actually advise people, it might be too late now, but if you're listening to this segment, watch the show first and then listen to our discussion of it. Because I think I went into it knowing a little too much. Not only did I know it was going to pivot, I knew about at what point it was going to pivot. I mean, it's just been so hard to avoid discussion of this show and it's sort of like most jokes, you don't want the joke spoiled, right? But especially when there's a joke that has this kind of, I don't know how to describe it, like reverse action, the way a rifle recoils on you or something, that's what her jokes do. And uh, and I have to say that I, I admired just the sheer brilliance of construction of that. I think that I would have admired the veer, the shift in the middle more, A, if I had not known it was coming, and B, if the first half had been funnier. You know, I mean, if the first half had really been like a classic stand-up set, that had you rolling in the aisles. And then there was this moment that, as you say, Juliet, curdles on you and all turns back. That might have been more powerful than the somewhat mild and familiar to me humor of the first half 
you know, then becoming this this burning, excoriating true story. Um, but without giving away what the joke was, I do really admire the way that she she takes this one particular joke from the mild first half and uh, and essentially adds another chapter. And there's this moment that she says, uh, the problem with jokes is that jokes only have a beginning and a middle and stories also need to have an end. And when she says that at first, you think, and I was talking about this with the person I watched it with, well, wait, that's not true. Jokes have a beginning and an end and they lack a middle. It seemed a strange thing to say that that jokes, right, the very thing that is that is constructed to have a cathartic payoff, don't have an ending. But then something that she does with that joke in the second half makes you see what she means about, you know, the beginning, the middle, and an end of a story. And so then it really be- becomes um, a, a story about stories, or maybe if you're Julia, a TED talk about stories. But that that part of it, the meta stuff at the end, to me, made the beginning worthwhile, if that makes sense, even though I might have preferred a, a steeper drop-off from the humor to the to the starkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I mostly agree with that, that the I was a little surprised that I wasn't laughing harder for the first half an hour, but I did laugh. I mean, I think she's, I think she's a, a good comedian. I think it's really hard to sustain an hour-long set. the The number of comedians who can do that is tiny. I think this worked for me when I began to see it as a dramatic monologue that superficially begins as a stand-up comedy set and then turns into something quite deconstructive and and meta and i usually i usually hate those words when they're applied to something um because it seems to me you get all the advantages of the something with this presumed kind of uh, great inflation for breaking it down um but without doing the thing all that well in a way but uh in this instance what was striking to me was how if you were to she has a couple of really major insights, the one that Dana points to, and then she's got this kind of long, digressive riff about art history and her background in art history and how she was able, how useless it made her feel, but how at certain moments she was able to apply it rhetorically. One particular moment she was able to apply it rhetorically. And then ironically kind of brings you around to seeing what the art history degree and knowledge of the stories of Picasso and Van Gogh meant to this person, uh, to this comedian, to this human being, and how deep and how interesting those things can be. And what was what was it what what made it work for me is that if you were to simply write down those two elements that emerge in the second half, what she's saying, they're actually quite intricate and substantive, right? They're not just uh, flouting one's expectations, you know, well-worn expectations for what comedy should be. They're actually highly analytical (laughs) and intricate and precise uh, ideas about, first of all, how jokes work and how maybe they shouldn't work. Because she eventually says, and I want to get to this, you know, she says she's retiring from comedy precisely because comedy freezes you in the moment of traumatic incompletion and forces you to go back to it over and over and over again in order to extract from it laughs as opposed to some sense of like closure or conclusion or moral certitude um and um but then the art history stuff i mean to me was just you know as someone who struggles to try to understand how you can incorporate being you know stupidly almost comically overeducated into something that 
other people might be interested in hearing or thinking about. I was blown away by how she did it. And and the hero, I mean, I don't think this gives anything away, but kind of the hero of the whole monologue ends up being, I mean, she closes with Theo Van Gogh, like Van Gogh's brother. I mean, she doesn't name him, but she's talking about Theo. And like what this relatively obscure figure, I mean, I guess people know him a little bit. If you know something about Van Gogh, you know about Theo. But, you know, this kind of gift that Theo ended up giving humanity obliquely by supporting his brother, who everyone regarded as a total pariah. And she does this thing that I really admire. As someone who's obsessed with Van Gogh, has read the thousand-page biography of him, the most shocking thing about Van Gogh is that people hated being around him, right? She she says it's like a form of intellectual cowardice to pretend that we would have liked Van Gogh or that we are like Van Gogh. Van Gogh was, was excruciating to be in the presence of because he was legitimately mentally sick. And she really tries to get at what that means in a way. And she's obviously trying to excavate, you know, the the weirdnesses of her own personality um, and the personality of people who are like, like legitimately non-conforming, who are legitimately not like what we expect other people to be and what we should do with it. And it's, it's, it just seemed to me this was more than just kind of you know, this lazy deconstructive, like, oh, you know, I'm going to tell non-jokes because I'm deconstructive. And in fact, what I am is just not funny. And so once once I realized that, the fact that she hadn't been like bitingly funny in the, you know, like, like guffawingly funny in the first half seemed to me quite excusable. And then I just thought she'd done something completely unique. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Like I, my comment, I just feel a responsibility to be honest with our audience. But my comment about feeling not totally bowled over by this. I think Dana's point about expectations is really right. Uh, I think if you saw this in person, and she's still doing the show a few more days in New York, I have no idea if it's sold out or not. But, um, you know, she's been touring this monologue for, uh, you know, more than a year, I think, uh, internationally. If you saw it in person, I think you would experience it as a revelation. If you experienced it without knowing what was coming, I think you would experience it as a revelation. I actually really loved the first half of the set because I liked the idea that in the Netflix era, like so many things can bloom, including a comedian from Tasmania who says that she's basically like shy and quiet. She expresses alienation from pride as the primary public means of gay identification and celebration because she's just like, I don't want to wear that garish flag and be in a loud party. I just want to, like, the best sound I could ever hear is a saucer settling into a teacup. Um, and I love the idea that someone with a more quiet, I mean, it's it's uh, Mr. Rogers-ish, right? Someone with a more quiet and interior aspect on life also gets to get up on stage and have a platform. So I enjoyed that and also enjoyed... I have not been super sympathetic to the complaints of people who are really mad that nobody ever watches the credits to anything on Netflix anymore because it always jumps ahead to the end because, like, by the way, people who are mad about that, no one ever watched the credits anyway. It's just acknowledging the truth. Your credit is still there. People can find it on IMDb. Like, stop whining. But uh, if you actually do make Netflix forcibly and take it by the reins, go back to actually watch the end of the credits, the final sound you hear is... The, settle, the settling of the teacup into the saucer, and it's very satisfying. Yeah, the beginning and end framing of this of the onstage monologue are great, not least because they incorporate, Julia, you'll appreciate this, her two standard poodles, which is pretty much dream mm. life, right? A cup of tea between two standard poodles. Yeah. So I really, I mean, I, overall, having this incredibly distinctive 
voice do something really fascinating. And I agree, Steve, really intellectually dense and smart with this form uh, is totally worth your time. I might recommend that if you've heard this or read some other stuff that you just like put it on your list and watch it in a year when you're when it's like a little further out from your um, consciousness or something, because I do think getting surprised by it might help its impact. I also mm-hmm. agree, Steve, that her analytical rigor as an art historian is one of the most unusual and fun parts of this this show. It's just it's it's really unusual and great to hear a one hour stand up monologue that also has all these brilliant insights about artist biographies and art history. Highly recommended Nanette Hannah Gadsby from Tasmania, uh, which doesn't come away looking great <laughs> from this uh, monologue, but she's from the West. The East is civilized. Um, anyway, <laughs> moving I for- on. I forgot that you would have tes- Tasmanian comments on this. Fair enough. Yeah. Julia, I know you're uh, I know you're um, eager to hear this, but zero zero in the 54th minute. All, <laughs> All right. right. Pesca's here. Tell someone who cares. <laughs> Mike, uh, zero, zero in the 56th minute. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sweden and Switzerland. Let's just focus on this game. I think everyone want to talk about Sweden and Switzerland. <laughs> I think what they want to hear is you and me live call it. <laughs> it yeah. does strike me as a potentially useful disambiguation for people who are confused between the two countries. Yeah. <laughs> there, are two, there are two countries that really, really hate when you confuse them, and those are Sweden and Switzerland. I love it. So it's neutrality versus not bellicosity. That's what's That's at right. stake. In Passivity, this. right. All right. Well, I don't think, but I think we incorporate all of that into the top of our segment, but now I'll f- more formally introduce Mike Pesca, host of the GIST podcast and just all around, I don't even know what to call you. You're like, you're like, you know, you really are sort of a, you know, new feminine man in a mm-hmm. red state body, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> I like to think of myself as the new face of the Democratic Party. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right. I come to what the world calls football and what we call soccer somewhat late, but I'm a zealous convert. I could not have lapped up this uh, year's World Cup more greedily than I have. Uh, I'm just going to cite a couple of things. One is Messi's three-touch goal, which just changed everything about me, including my sexuality. And um, that extra time winner by Belgium, which was uh, th- 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 a thing of absolute spontaneity and beauty, um, it's, it's just gotten into my bloodstream. I have to watch the sport more than once every four years. Um, but Mike, uh, talk to me about your relationship to soccer as an American sports fan and why, why doesn't it catch on more here? So you're a messy sexual. That is good. That. <laughs> well done, sir. <laughs> um, I think it is catching on. And I think that the old trope about, oh, soccer's boring or soccer's not suited to the American sensibility. I was trying to think of the cultural equivalent. It's that women aren't funny. That is this. That is where that uh, argument is in terms of how much credence you should give it, because there's so many counterexamples objectively, and then subjectively, it's not true. The MLS is growing. It has been true that for a while children have liked soccer, but I think for the fact, but for the fact that the U.S. failed to qualify for this World Cup, we would definitely be talking about the rise of soccer, and then of course. Because the U.S. women dominate, or at least are the best team 
in women's soccer, and that is the number one sport for women. How could you even have the conversation Mm -hmm. that soccer isn't popular when it's the number one sport for women, and U.S. women or U.S. girls in high school participate in sports more than girls in any other country? Uh, I think soccer exemplifies, this is the weirdest thing, but I think soccer exemplifies a lot of great things about America, but maybe that's because a lot of people who ignore soccer are what I don't want to think about uh, when mm-hmm. I think about the bad things about America. Right. But I mean, I within my social circle, I have plenty of people who are absolutely devoted to, to you know, soccer yeah. uh, in one way or another. They're watching the Premier League. They, they probably couldn't name an American soccer team. Uh, the degree to which it's starting to penetrate uh, the consciousness of American sports fan is uh, kind of inversely proportional to the amount people care about in terms of the men's game. Um, um, American professional soccer, which kind of has close to no status um, among the viewing public. Uh, do you think that's going to change? I don't know, but does it have to change? So with the availability of the EPL, the English Premier League, and with NBC having this big deal to show it to us in pretty decent time periods, I don't know. I think maybe U.S. soccer for the certain cities that have the teams um, can be on the rise. I think that it's now a money-making business. I think soccer, in the if they can't name a team, I would just advise them, think of any random collective noun, because that's probably the name of a team, the galaxy, the impact, the fire, so forth. <laughs> yeah, so no, I have, I don't, but the thing is, when I think about the World Cup and I think about the U- U.S. soccer, I have zero worry that in some form it will be a thing. And people uh, who are big sports fans um, or even in sports business always want to compare it to these other behemoth sports. But I think the other sports, I love the NBA and I really still like football, although the NFL is horribly problematic. I think the other sports are too big and they've gotten, they've they've taken up too much room in the culture. So maybe soccer is where mm-hmm. I, soccer is sort of where sports were in maybe the 1960s mm-hmm. or 1970s. Yeah. You wouldn't expect them to dominate the culture, but if you're a fan, they give you pleasure and that's where soccer is. You know, unlike the major American sports, a soccer game doesn't break up into discrete units in any natural way, right? They're, they're, you don't stop time when the ball goes out of bounds. Uh, you know, you don't have innings, you don't have timeouts by and large, you don't have you don't have major injury substitutions. Um, uh, and so it's very hard to cram it a soccer game with endless commercials, which is great for the viewer. It just has flow, but it limits it, I think, as a business uh, relative to the other major American sports. Probably always have that 1960s feel of something that can't be commercially dominant. Yes, that's, that's Probably, but this was the argument for years and years. What about the commercials? And that argument was held, that discussion was held at a time when commercials were dominant. But now I think advertisers know that stopping the main thing and showing commercials are a really mm-hmm. poor way to get people's attention. So soccer has been forced to do things like have... Um, Chirons on the screen and branded uh, advertisements around the stadium and actually really clever things by necessity that they had to adopt that you see all the other sports leagues doing. So I don't think soccer relatively is at is at as much a disadvantage as it was 20 years ago when let us stop and show you a 30 second ad was the main way that marketing was done in the US. You, you Again, you can't compare it to the Super Bowl, right? You can't compare it to the high ratings that a commercial are going to is going to get during a playoff game in the NBA. But for, say, a regular season game, I bet the Adidas sign in the background of a soccer game does a lot better than the Enterprise commercial between the third and fourth quarters of a Milwaukee's Bucks game. 
Can I posit uh, a grand theory of the future of soccer? Yes. With uh, all of my insight and grounding in the matter. For both that commercial reason you just described, Mike, which I think is the exact right analysis, and for a couple others I will hear and enumerate, it feels to me like soccer is the American sport of the future in a couple ways. One is it's completely in line with the future of marketing and the future of media, right? All of the barriers to entry to following the actual best soccer in the world are falling. You can legitimately get on American TV the Premier League through various combinations of streaming options, legal and sublegal. You can see basically anything you want at any point. Most of the men I know in their 30s or 40s are following some European team and like, <laughs> you know, popping off to watch soccer games. Uh, the rise of the availability of those soccer games comes at a moment where the relationship with the NFL is fraught in a couple different ways, both in terms of the health of the players and the psychic, moral, and political health of the league. Uh, the advertising model makes sense. People want to stream their content uninterrupted and want the marketing. They don't really want the marketing necessarily, but as a result, marketing is becoming kind of integrated, product placement D you know, slipped into the actual meat of what you are trying to watch as opposed to assuming that it'll hold your attention for some idiotic break in between. And then the final piece is we are living in a moment where Americans are having to reckon with not being the best and the biggest, right? Like we, our position on the global stage is faltering. It's mm -hmm. continuing to falter. We're st we, we are at a moment of decline. And uh, I have been amazed by the audience for the World Cup on Slate this year. So we usually go nuts for sports. Our sports coverage is great. All hail the great Josh Levine, who engineers most of it. But nobody covers the Olympics like we do. And nobody covers the World Cup like we do, because we take a slightly off kilter approach. And we look at the geopolitics and the culture and the media and the sport itself. And it's always one of my favorite things when we go nuts on a sports event. However, we kind of held back on planning for our coverage for this World Cup because we weren't sure what the audience interest would be in it, given that the U.S. team right. failed to qualify. Doesn't matter. Interest has been huge. Traffic and, and audience for all of the work that we've been doing has been enormous. And so we've been adding more, you know, we've been covering it more and more aggressively. Uh, and and the, the audience is right there. And I think there's just an appeal, you know, we're... I, for a kind of a, a, a dilettante sports fan like myself, I love the Olympics where it's like you only pay attention every four years. You get a whole new cast of characters. And the narrative in that story is like, well, if the Americans don't crush everybody, it's a horrible embarrassment to our nation, essentially, in like almost every sport because of the money and resources we put into most of the uh, sports that are contested in that event. We can't. It's real. It would be fucking astonishing for us to perform like there's just no assumption of dominance in this sport for Ameri the American team and I think there is just a whole generation of Americans who for whom there is no assumption of dominance in our understanding of what America is right now and there's some alignment there that I feel like uh, will guide people to the sport going forward yeah Julia I think your second point there about about Americans enjoying the chance to to look at other countries and think about other countries for a change and get out of our own giant piggish solipsistic heads is really to me the joy of the World Cup. And I say this as a person who has watched exactly 15 minutes of the World Cup, but what that 15 minutes was 
was Brazil beating Mexico. And uh, and that was just a great personal joy to me because when it comes to soccer, I always root for Brazil. Oh, I know I that's a little bit like Mexican team. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, I have great fondness for for uh, for the Mexican team for other reasons and would have loved to see them do well. But just almost on principle, I always root for Brazil, which I know is sort of like rooting for the Yankees, right? Because Brazil has, what, won five times now of the World Cup? They're good. But, um, <laughs> but I just have a personal history with They're Brazil. They're also the most populous nation in the World Cup because, you know, China, India, U.S., not in it. Well, there's a big mm-hmm. reason, right, that that Brazil always feels such a great team. It's a yeah. hugely populous country that loves soccer. So yeah. they're, every single day they're giving birth to another child who could become a great soccer all, all player. All named Neymar, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, my whole history with Brazil and, and with having lived there, I actually was there in 1990 during the World Cup and saw the nation go into collective mourning when Argentina beat Brazil and kicked them out. I also, by a matter of happenstance, because I was working at a job with a lot of Brazilians at the time, went to the 1994 final game of the World Cup and saw them win that game. And when you see the joy that that brings the country and what it means to yes. to that country, oh, yes. which which like our country right now, Brazil is going through some shit. Brazil is essentially going through like a soft coup d'etat and having an absolutely horrible, horrible political crisis. Um, and as are, I'm sure, countries all over the world. So Brazil happens to be this place that for my own history is dear to my heart. But that makes me think about all the people around the country who are just picking a country that's dear to their heart, whether it's because, you know, that's where their ancestors came from. That's, you know, where they studied abroad. That's where their boyfriend lived, whatever that, that they everybody or, or immigrants themselves talking about the games, which I hear every time I walk out in the streets. Right. You walk into a bodega, a game is on and the Korean owner is chatting with the, you know, El Salvadorian guy stocking the shelves about the game between two totally different countries. And so that sense of internationalism kind of penetrating our dense American consciousness is something that's I, that to me is, is beautiful about soccer. Mm-hmm. Before this, but this oh, all very much reflects our demographic. I mean, our demographic slate because soccer, the soccer fandom is pretty much the Democratic Party. It is browner. It is more urban. When you say everyone, you know, Julia, uh, who's in their 30s is watching the EPL. This is the dudes with neck beards crowd. Uh, there are some <laughs> there are some Republicans uh, in the South who just like the sport for uh, if it's as athleticism, but in the United States, soccer maps onto the Democratic Party like no other sport. Um, and also, you were talking about how Slate uh, does well with its soccer coverage. Look at the podcast charts. These podcasts, we came to win an American fiasco, jumped up the charts, and who's listening to podcasts? So it's not exactly that broad swath of America. So mm-hmm. maybe this argues right. against it becoming the next football, but it's be- and of course, soccer is not more liberal than conservative on the national international stage. You know, Franklin Ford wrote a whole book about this and different teams mean different regions of the country and different political sides and different countries. But I think that that is, that should inform uh, when we think about the popularity of soccer, that piece of information should inform it. Well, that's the other thing that's funny that's at odds with the liberal audience here is that you, it both engages you with a more global view of the world and forces you to reckon with a, a, a world stage on which America is not dominant. But of course, it's so much more fun to root for the underdog than the Yankees. And like my Red Sox fandom has waned as the Red Sox have gotten, you know, have have gone further and further from underdogdom. So there's also sort of an illusion of uh, plucky scrappiness that uh, is like kind of a nice um, 
thing to imagine about yourself and your nation. So there's a little bit of fantasy indulgence in that yeah, too, yeah. I think, for folks. Since the mm. end of the Cold War, we haven't had that big rival. It's why the Miracle on Ice is the greatest upset and will can never be supplanted as the greatest upset in sports history. Until um, yeah. we yes, win the World Cup. That's right. But it, there has to be somehow there has to be a huge rival who becomes I mean, somehow Brazil has to wage war upon us and then we would come <laughs> and vanquish those Brazilians. I'm still rooting for Brazil. This is Just what FYI. This is what Trump is up to. It's a long con to create more international rivals like given the way he's like poking at canada germany like you know we've, we've got we're gonna have so many more enemies so it'll be great for soccer all right well i'm gonna have the last word here sweden won switzerland nothing 77th minute wow wow people who get their upset <laughs> up, updates two days later take that neutrality <laughs> mike thank you for coming back on the show this has to happen more often we got to do some kind of live event with you again soon I'd love to. Will you tell? Will you disclose the location to me beforehand, if we oh do a live God. event? <laughs> if I had known you would have been there, Mike Pesca, I, you would have been the first to know. You'll know. I have a secret location picked out for next year. Right. I will email it to you now. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks, Thank you. Mike. Thank you, guys. Oh, here they go. Oh, beautiful lead pass. Oh, into the box. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, an amazing cross. Went for naught, though. <laughs> oh, what a move. All right, does someone else want to run endorsements? <laughs> yeah, We've lost can. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll mute it. I'm not going to stop it, but I will mute it. <sighs> Today is uh, sadly the last day that we have Daniel Schrader as our production assistant. He will be joining us for endorsements. Then, nah, what do you have? Uh, Steve, I'm going to be a you in two ways. For one thing, I have two endorsements. And secondly, one of them is a local business. <laughs> so I'm definitely channeling you in this this segment today. The first one is actually more of a public service announcement, which I think everyone who listens to this podcast or a very large percentage of them will appreciate knowing, which is that the new season of You Must Remember This, the great movie history podcast dropped today. I haven't listened to it yet, but the theme of the new season sounds incredible. What she, the host and, and producer, Karina Longworth, is doing is... Um, it's going to the Kenneth Anger book, Hollywood Babylon, which is this, you know, venerable text about sort of Hollywood myth, uh, much of it claimed to be trashy and false, and taking apart some of those myths. So the whole season is going to be going to Kenneth Anger legends and then going to the actual history and seeing how they check out. The first half of the season is about silent film, which, of course, I'm really excited about that she's getting into right now. So the first show, I believe, is going to be about Rumors that the Gish sisters, Lilian and Dorothy Gish, the big stars of D.W. Griffith's films, were incestuous lovers, which apparently Anger claims in his book. So that sounds incredible, juicy, interesting, and it's really the best film podcast out there. So you must remember this. And my second local endorsement is the restaurant that I wanted to go to for dinner on my birthday, but it turned out it was closed. It's my new favorite restaurant in Brooklyn, and I'm endorsing it specifically in the hope that everyone will go to it so it will continue to exist so that I can continue to go to it. And uh, the place is called Corner Deli, with Delhi spelled like New Delhi, India, D-E-L-H-I. And it's an Anglo-Indian restaurant that's in this beautiful little, not very trafficked block of, of Bergen Street. So um, in Brooklyn, right between essentially Park Slope and Prospect Heights. It's not a restaurant that you would notice when you're walking by, which of course is part of the charm. It's sort of a tucked away little cove. And uh, and the Anglo-Indian aspect makes it really different from your average Indian restaurant. I mean, I love your average Indian restaurant that always has the same eight dishes as every other and has a buffet for lunch. And that kind of food is great. This is a little bit more upscale and it's a little bit more Anglo. So there's kind of a twist on the food. 
Um, but there's nothing I had there that wasn't perfectly prepared and delicious. The music is really unusual and interesting. The decor is all sort of like old Bollywood posters and interesting old signs from around India. It just doesn't feel like any other Indian restaurant or any other restaurant. And uh, the drinks are extraordinary. The service is lovely. There's not one thing about Corner Deli that I don't love. So Corner Deli, D-E-L-H-I in Brooklyn. Go there next time you're in the neighborhood. That sounds yum. Really, really good. That sounds so good. And who? how did no one think of that name before, right? I know. It's such a great name. I mean, everything about this place feels kind of Brigadoon-like. Like, I can't believe it materialized in my neighborhood and I can walk to it anytime I want. It doesn't have a ton of hours right now. It's closed two days a week. It doesn't serve lunch, only dinner. But if you all go there, if you build it, they will come and <laughs> it will open. A, a, I think they're trying to open a lunch or brunch hour. They're just waiting for the uh, the, the business to come. I've either completely corrupted you or brought you around. I'm not sure which one it is, but I'm so proud of you, Dana. <laughs> For hogging so much time and <laughs> talking about a place that only a tiny slice of our listeners can go to. Exactly. All right, Julia, what do you have? Uh, continuing on my stream of somewhat obvious endorsements, I would just like to issue this PSA to our listeners that the second season of Glow has dropped on Netflix and is incredible. And we discussed Glow when the first season came out, and I think we all agreed it was full of great performances, that Alison Brie and Betty Gilpin are terrific, that Mark Maron is really doing a great job as an actor in this Mark Maron-ish but twisted role, um, that there was sort of a like larky fun putting on a show quality to it that just made it seem raffish and delightful and excellent. Um, and I gulped down season one uh, like a glass of lemonade on a hot day. Season two takes the show in a it, – it, it's the same but better. It basically, in my view, fulfills all the delights and promises of season one. It's just as fun. But the character studies are a little bit deeper. The plots are a little bit richer. The overall arc of the season uh, is more intense. There's more mischief and fun. Like season two to me proves that Glow isn't like a one-off funsy sideshow. It is like one of the best television shows that's being made right now. And it's an essential watch. And Alison Brie may be the best actress of her generation. Uh, and like watch it. You will not be able to stop. You'll watch it in one night. It's so good. Wait, so is how oh important gosh. is it to have seen all of one before you embark on two? I mean, why would you deprive yourself of the pleasure of seeing the rest of one? Because <laughs> it'll take you a nanosecond. Um I, I think my recommendation would be to finish one before watching two. I'm sure you could start at two and catch up, but the episodes are so slight and they go down so easy. And there are several plot elements from season one that set up the foundation of season two that my recommendation would be if you didn't finish season one, go back, do it, and then watch season two. But Alison Brie is mm. a marvel, like... The whole thing is great. It's one of the best shows. It's really uh, just gotten deeper and richer. And it's it's sort of the opposite of Unreal. Unreal was like frothy but had things to say. And then season two, you were like, whoa, you guys are cray. This is not a good show. Never mind. And this is the this has like grown into its potential in a really exciting, thrilling way. Um, okay, I'm going to endorse watching live sports while working. An unbelievable header from the left flank. Met with an equally incredible save, keeping it at one nothing Sweden. People, I'm telling you. How am I supposed to link that on the show page? (laughs) Yeah. 
All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to a couple of oldies but goodies because they really are the things that have just blown me away the most in the past week. Uh, uh, repetition be damned. Um, many, many, many years ago, I'm sure everyone has forgotten. I endorsed a pod, one of the few podcasts I listened to. It's called the Robert Elms Show. Robert Elms is a Brit. A Londoner, and he's had a show. I think it's become a kind of institution over there uh, on the BBC for uh, decades. I think it's a kind of a lunch hour or daytime um, radio show, and he, it, it just occurs to me that Robert Elms is the. I mean, there's so many different kinds of interviewers, and and the ones that really stick and become institutions have their own peculiar form of genius. Charlie Rose, before he became completely disgraced. Uh, you know, uh, Terry Gross, uh, Isaac Chatner is 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 uh, get, entering into that discussion. But Robert Elms has his thing is to be unbelievably cheerful and jolly, and and so English, but like um, definitely East London English. Uh, and he's um, he's he he just draws that aspect of his interviewees out, and they're. Very London-centric, by and large, though that will often mean someone you've heard of will stop by. Um, I mean, it could be a pop star like Ray Davies or something. I mean, there's sort of an emphasis on the golden era of rock and roll a little bit, but it's not. It's 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 more diverse than that. But Elms is just a, a absolutely brilliant um, host, and I think more people in this country should know her show. And then the other is, you know, I I do my hammock time every year with Ferrante, so I'm going to do a book a year for four years running, and uh, um, the truth of the matter is I only got two thirds of the way through the second one. And I went back to it to finish it up in time for me to go to Maine and and start the third. Uh, And it's unbelievable because I'm the rare person, I think, who loved the book unreservedly from the beginning and i was like why do people keep saying it keep saying it gets better and better and better like the the, the tetralogy like some people were skeptical of it or they liked it but then they loved it and then you hit this moment about two-thirds of the way through the second one where it goes from like you thought it was great and then you realize oh no by the standards of what's happening now it was good and now it's great i mean it just finds some extra gear it goes to 11 it it, it, it you enter a like this raps Sodic sphere of 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 truth, where truth and beauty are indistinguishable, indistinguishable from one another, and that book just gets so fucking good. Do you guys remember the second one with any degree of specificity? Well, I mean, I think I remember the whole thing as one continuous narrative, so I might not know what's in the second one as opposed to the first one. But I definitely yeah, agree that that that, yeah. that series sort of whipped itself up into a frenzy of greatness as it went on. I mean, I just there's all I'll say is there's this moment where the narrator is on 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 the beach. I mean, the whole much of the second book is this gigantic sort of almost diary, day to day diary of um, them at the beach. And there are kinds of complications, you know, involving lovers and spouses that well, I don't want to give too much away. But there's this one rhapsodic moment. What I love about Ferrante, too, is this juxtaposition of an almost non-literary language that does appear to come out of a diary. I mean, it's always wonderful with sudden bursts of quite literary language, almost like a musical that goes from dialogue and bursts into song. And she balances those two wonderfully. And there's just this one moment where Lenu is on the beach. Anyway, so Robert Elms and Ferrante, I'll stop. One nothing Sweden in the 94th minute. And now to endorse is Daniel Schrader, our production assistant, Daniel. This is our tradition that we do this on your last show. So 
This is bittersweet. Yeah, I'm sorry to be leaving. I've loved working with y'all for a year and a half, I guess. It's been quite a while, but uh, obviously I only have one recommendation and it's my favorite murder. (laughs) 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 Kidding, kidding. Trolling. Exactly. Um, I I have two. Uh, One of them is something that everyone can encounter and then the other one is a bit more esoteric. Uh, The first one is just... The Toast archives are back online. Everyone run and read The Toast if you haven't. It's the best website besides Slate. Um, It's just so funny and fresh, and you'll always have a good time. One of my favorite pieces on it is the... uh, the pitch meeting for the TV show Wishbone, which is a like imagined meeting of what that TV show pitch meeting would have been like. It was about a the dog who told kids stories um, like Tale of Two Cities, and he dressed up as one of the characters in that and things like that. It's just a really great um, encapsulation of what's so good about that TV show and why it was so weird. Uh, but The Toast. Everyone read The Toast. I'm so glad. I didn't realize that they had managed to get their archives back up. That's excellent. Yeah, they just went up on Friday, I think. Cool. Yeah. And then um, my other thing is uh, the author R.A. Lafferty. Um, His full name is Raphael Aloysius Lafferty, which is just a delicious name to say. And he is this um, kind of forgotten sci-fi and fantasy author from the 1970s and 80s that I encountered actually weirdly through a collection of short stories that Neil Gaiman has that in one of the short stories... um, introductions, he talks about how he tried to write a story in the voice of R.A. Lafferty, this inspiration um, from his childhood, and he realized so quickly how difficult it is to write an R.A. Lafferty story. They're these weird speculative fiction um, short stories, and he has a few novels that are just... It's hard to even articulate what they are. They just kind of capture you and draw you in, and um, I, I found one of... The problem with recommending him is most of his work is out of print, uh, they are slowly bringing back some of his work in like these very expensive collections that I will link to on the show page. But um, also just like seek him out in any used bookstore you can find. Uh, I bought I've just like ordered kind of expensive copies of stuff from Amazon and eBay because of how desperate I was to like dig into this man's work. And they're really great. I just I can't recommend him high enough. So Ari Lafferty, I will seek him out. That's those are great endorsements. Hooray. Thanks. Except for my favorite murder. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, this isn't goodbye. Thankfully, you're joining us for plus. But uh, thank you, Daniel, for the endorsement. And, thank you. Uh, th- and thank you for the year and a half of in- incredible, delightful, fun. Of course. I loved it. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Dana. <sighs> Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant was Daniel Schrader. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you soon. 